Turn with me to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless and help us to understand your word, to inwardly digest and receive it, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, into a worship service walk two people, and uh, perhaps they've come in uh, to that meeting. Uh, It's not really clearly defined that in this passage, James is referencing either an organized Sunday worship service or, or whether or not he's speaking of simply a, a church meeting or a church Bible study. But wherever they're coming in, they're coming into a church. And these two individuals are un- unidentifiable. Uh, we're not told, uh, we're only told their gender, that th- there is a rich man and there is a poor man. We're not told anything about whether or not they are of the faith. They've simply come into the assembly of God's people and someone observes them coming in and and these individuals, they're strangers, are not where they're not aware of where they should sit. So they come into the back, and you you know how it is. We look at strangers as they come into the church, they're not quite aware of where to sit or where might I sit? Where's the best place to sit? Where's the restroom? Uh, where's the ladies' room? Where's the men's room? Where's the nursery? Is there a prayer room? Where is the coffee hour after the service? You say, it's downstairs. Well, how far down do I have to go? And I'm a little nervous about going down there for the first time with these strange people. And so we help people. And so we say, well, come, follow me and come with me where I go. And well, there, there are some who might come into the service. And so here is a situation where two men come into the assembly and they're not sure. They're not quite sure where to sit. It seems that there's a full house. There's a full house. People are sitting. Uh, some have their feet up on stools. Others are sitting in, in, in established seating that's already there. Others have maybe brought their own chairs. It used to be in churches across the land many, many years ago, Oh, not that long ago, actually, maybe a hundred years or so, that people would purchase the best seats in a church and they would pay for the construction of those seats or give a certain gift to the church. And they would place their names upon that particular small section where there are multiple benches. And they would walk through a small door and sit down in their booth. They would sit there week after week, month after month, year after year, and they'd bequeath those spots to their children and their families after them. 
and the poor would sit in the free seating in the back. Well, in our generation, that's the best seat in the house, isn't it? Sit in the back. No one wants to sit up front. Well, in the old days, everyone wanted to sit up front. No one wanted to sit in the back. And so the free section would be for the poorer folk in the back to sit. Well, into this assembly comes to come two men. And the first, he's wealthy. He's got a gold ring on his finger. Uh, not like we have. Uh, this is my marriage ring. It doesn't. It's not a symbol of my wealth at all. In fact, it's contrary to that. It's a very simple uh, without adornment uh, uh, ring. Uh, it's 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 a little heavy, but it's not all that. Uh, it's it's easily purchased, uh, generally speaking. I don't have any other gold rings. I don't have any gold necklaces or toe rings or any other such things. Maybe maybe you do. But he has an identifiable wealth about him. You've seen people like that. Uh, they have multiple uh, rings on their hands. Not that that's an evil thing, but, but we can judge to some extent by what people wear. Maybe they've got a rock on their finger, a really large diamond uh, ring, and you say, wow, this is a wealthy person. Maybe it's the way that they carry themselves. It's simply their carriage as they walk into the building. Maybe it's their... Their clothing, and you can see, oh my goodness, that's definitely Versace. I don't know what the issue is, but or something like that. Maybe it's a different, maybe I'm outdated at this point. But but uh, they walk in with a flair. They are wealthy, and you immediately know this is an influential person. We, we've got to put them up front. We should definitely not put them in a humble portion or or place. Uh, they deserve to have a nice seat. Well, the second person comes in, and we recognize immediately they're not very wealthy. The funny thing is, sometimes people who are not very well-dressed are, in fact, wealthy. Last week I read an article about a man who is in New Hampshire uh, who left something like 3 or $4 million to his town. No one knew. This man did not own drive a car. What he did was he drove uh, to town and to the local... Uh, to the local uh, general store and post office on a mower. He would drive on his ride-on mower downtown. He was known for that. He was not known to wear very much by way of clothing. It was often sullied or stained. Uh, he lived in a simple uh, house trailer um, down on the edges of town. He didn't spend much money. Well, he was wealthy, and he saved that money. And when he died, he gave it all to the town. I could think of a much, much better use for wealth when one dies, but nonetheless, that's what he did. Uh, he was a wealthy man. He would walk into the church, we would think he's poor. So truly, we, we're not always able to ascertain where people are at, and our judgments often fall flat. But the fact is that typically, a person who walks in in ripped clothing, never mind that uh, most uh, young women and young men today wear jeans that are ripped, uh, but in, in, in a day in which one did not wear ripped jeans, uh, at, at any rate, uh, I'm, I think I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but but you get the idea. Someone walks in and we think immediately, this is not a wealthy person. Um, recently, there was a young woman who attended church and who said that she had to actually go out and purchase a shirt so she could come to church. Uh, in decent array. That's, that's the kind of person that, frankly, you as a congregation welcomed immediately. 
Before that person left that day, she had been invited to a meal that day and the next following Sunday. Uh, that church, uh, This church welcomed her and with open arms and immediately promised rides on any given Sunday she could ever desire ever to come to church. Her daughter was immediately welcomed into Sunday school. Uh, they were welcomed into fellowship immediately. That's the kind of place this church is. And so this text is about that very thing. Well, we might have similar circumstances in the world today where, as a church, we meet on Sunday mornings and maybe someone comes in, they're a little late, and we get them a bulletin and a hymnal and we immediately make an assessment, a prejudicial assessment as to where we think they are in their faith. We make a prejudicial assessment and, and, and adopt a favoristic sort of attitude toward them based upon their outward appearance, maybe being wealthy or whether they identify themselves as a lawyer or a medical doctor or a wealthy business owner, the mayor of the city or an influential person in some way, or whether or not the other person, the person that comes in is nondescript, not, as, not dressed especially well, wealthy or well. And there's one reason why people tend to treat people in that way, to make a judgment about their appearance. And, and it comes down to this, whether favorably or unfavorably, it's because how they look, their physical appearance only, and it's called prejudice or favoritism or, or bias. And people make judgments. And to be quite frank, to be honest, we all make judgments. Every last one of us make judgments based upon what we see. We do. Every one of us make judgments based upon what we feel about another person. That's the situation. What are we to make of it? How are we to bring our thoughts into conformity to what James says is authentic Christianity? Well, he has a lot of thoughts from the passage this morning helping us to put aside such favoritistic, prejudicial thoughts when people enter into the assembly of God's people. He's been discussing the subject of authentic Christianity, of sincere faith, of genuine piety, of the perspective that we should have on trials and temptations, the need for wisdom and for faith's approach to changing circumstances. And in verse 9, he referenced the brother of humble circumstances and the rich man. And he said the brother of humble circumstances should rejoice for the riches that he has in Christ. And the rich man should humble himself before Christ because he knows that his wealth will disappear like the dust of the earth. So a believer, according to chapter 1, is someone who seeks the wisdom of God, who adopts a humble recognition of grace, who considers it all joy when they encounter various trials, who trusts God while enduring under his testing of our faith, who perseveres under trials and pursues the crown of life by loving God with all of ourselves. James is showing us what an authentic Christianity is. He wants us to understand what living out, what we say that we believe will look like in the life of the believer. Personal piety is where it's observed. And Christians, we love the word and we submit to it. We're not someone who looks only at the outside or, or looks at the word of God, hears it, forgets it, and walks away. We're not like people who do not check their tongue and who watch carefully over their speech that we watch carefully our behavior toward one another, that we're filled with compassion 
We're transformed by true regeneration. We refuse to live and think as the world does. Well, taking up that same subject, James tells us this week that Christian people who are genuinely Christians are not going to show favoritism. Must not show favoritism. Cannot show favoritism. There are many reasons why. So we come first to favoritism's denial. There are three points to the sermon. Favoritism's denial, favoritism's consequences, and favoritism's remedy. Firstly, favoritism's denial. You know, James doesn't say an awful, he doesn't mention specifically the person of Jesus Christ very often. He does so three times. He did so in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, here in verse 1 of chapter 2, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He'll do so again later, and we'll look at that at that time. He doesn't mention Christ an awful lot explicitly, but he does so implicitly. And when he does specifically mention Christ, he does so with a very high and devoted uh, sense of of reverence for him. And so he, he he takes pains to make sure that he speaks of Jesus Christ. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is the glorious in his character, in his beauty, in his righteousness, in his goodness, faithfulness. He is glorious in all that he does. He is the Lord. He is the master. He is our savior, the Christ, the Messiah. Literally in the Greek, it reads, Kyriou hemoon Yesu Christu tes doxes. He is the Lord of glory. He is Jesus Christ of glory. What is the relevance in taking in this this picture of Jesus as our glorious Savior? Well, what do we esteem? What impresses us? What impresses you when someone walks into the assembly? Do you recognize that on the Lord's day, when we enter into the assembly, the Lord is there with his people? He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. He has promised his presence with his believing community, with his people. And so if the Lord is here and we're impressed by the outward appearance of people who seem to be influential and wealthy, and we denigrate those who are poor and not wealthy, who don't seem to have an undue influence, are we not saying fundamentally, I don't value the glory of God. What I value is the glory of earth. Am I not saying that I I, I place lesser value on the glory of the Savior and on my Master, the Lord Jesus, who is glorious, who is worthy to be observed, honored, and glorified, and I value more highly than Him the glory of the earth and its transitory passing glory in the outward examples of a rich man and a wealthy man. What impresses us? What do we tend to lend a greater glory? Physical characteristics or the nature, the inner quality of a person. 
So here's the example. Two people walk into a church service. Sounds like the opening phrase of a joke. It's, it's well, let me tell you, two people walk into a, 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 a worship service and you're waiting for the punchline. Well, the punchline is that people, uh, people can see a discernible physical difference between the two. One's wealthy, one's poor, and they give an exalted position to the one who is wealthy and influential. And they humble the other one according to a perceived station and place them in the footstool at their feet. Well, that's a horrible thing, is it not? There's an incredible relevance to our generation, our worship and adoration of physical characteristics through social media. Who do we and what do we value the most? Well, our generation has shown us explicitly. A really good-looking body, a resplendent face, beauty, lush hair, all the rest of it. Not that beauty is something to be avoided or something not to be thankful for, certainly. But we are to be humbled before God that he has made us according to his will and to give thanks to God rather than to self-worship or to encourage the adulation, the idolatry of other persons around us. We should walk in humility, giving thanks to God for that he has made us fearfully and wonderfully after his will. We love, we, we make idols of social media and figures on social media. It is a preposterous idea, is it not, that someone can earn an extraordinary living by influencing other people how to live, by their lifestyle, that more often than not is a complete lie. Do we not understand that? That being what it may, we have an example in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our master, is one whose example we are to follow. He is the one who is resplendent in his glory. He is the one who is glorious. He is the morning star. It is him that we should seek to imitate and to emulate. doesn't mean that you can't get online and see, well, what kind of eyeliner does that young woman wear? And what kind of workout does he use? It doesn't mean that we can't do that, but we tend to do an awful lot much more than that. What we tend to do is, well, I want to be like him. I want to look like her. I want others to admire me like they admire her, like I admire him. But as Christian people, we are to be those who understand that those things pale in comparison to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of our Savior. More than this, there is relevance here for us as those who are racked by bias and hate crimes and partiality and prejudice and racial differentiation. Are those who cry out against the patriarchy or those who might cry out against their matriarchy? The church cannot walk in favoritism. The church should not transact with prejudice. The church must not hold biases against one another. That's what this passage simply states. And this is what favoritism, prejudice, and bias deny. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are essentially making a transaction saying, 
that as we as we draw biased judgments between one another or hold prejudices against each other or or walk or, or hold favorites before us or act with favoritism towards certain groups or individuals, we are essentially saying that the glory of the world means more to me than the glory of Jesus Christ. If we have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, how can we make differentiations between one another, hold one another with in, with favorite views when we have come to recognize that this world is empty and vain. And Christ is glorious and good. His beauty is resplendent and who he is worthy to be worshipped. Simply stated, prejudice and bias and partiality and emphasis of racial or economic differences favoritism, they're all Christ-denying. They're all glory-obscuring. They're all faith-denying. They're all evil judgment which promotes practices and continued policies in the church. And it must never be. The church will never be, nor should it pursue, a socialist utopian society where everyone's all on equal footing, equal status, equal wealth. It's not achievable. That's not what the Bible calls us to do. Or to work toward. Some of us who are more wealthy than others. Some of us work harder than others and achieve more. Some of us are unable to physically work. Some of us have been born with certain disabilities and or have established disabilities throughout the course of our lives. Some of us are born in different genders. Uh, They're male and they're female. There's no in-between. And there are certain advantages and disadvantages acquainted with both. Truth of the matter is, there is differentiation between mankind, between men and women, the wealthy and the poor. This, this passage isn't calling for all rich persons to find their seat on the floor next Sunday, and for all uh, uh, for all all poor persons to come and sit up front and to be able to be partaking up front and close and personal with the preacher. It's not doing that at all. And it's certainly not denying or or destroying any cultural relevance to the idea of of common courtesy. Whereas here is a man who's sitting in a seat, and here walks in a woman, and there are no other seats. And the man stands up and says, would you take my seat? This is a proper and good thing to do. Or for a young person to say, here, take my seat to an older person. Or here, at the family lunch, here, you go first. Certainly don't do it and say, don't, don't do it by saying, you go first, you're elderly and I'm young. Don't let them in on this, but keep it to yourself. But certainly do that, because it's a gracious and courtesy or courteous thing to do. But preferential treatment based upon perceived advantages is what denies the glory of Christ, not common courtesy to all without partiality. The truth of the matter is wealth often exerts an undue influence in the church, does it not? It does. The wealthy seem to have a a tendency to assert their own self-rights over the direction of the church, believing that they have given so much that they have a right to determine the direction of the church. And in fact, the situation seems to be, as James is writing to them, to these Christians, is that the wealthy are often dragging them into court, and he's saying, 
Why would you uphold the wealth of an individual as a reason for placing that person in greater prominence in the church? Jesus does not respect those differences or have an eye toward that person's wealth. They're an object of grace, equally so with yourself. Wealth often seeks its own. Now, that's not to say that the wealthy are all lost or that the wealthy are, have no place in the kingdom of Christ. Abraham was a very wealthy man. Job was the wealthiest man on the face of the earth, or at least one of them. God took it all away, and then he gave him far more. Solomon was deeply wealthy, and God gave him that wealth. And there were many wealthy women who came and helped Jesus and gave out of their own substance and served him, provided for his disciples, and were benefactors to the Apostle Paul and others. So wealth is not something that somehow is evil in and of itself. If God has made you wealthy, praise the Lord. Be humbled in your circumstances because it is a, it is a neck-choking thing to a believer. It is very hard to be wealthy. Jesus said it is harder for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for the wealthy, the rich, to enter the kingdom of God. It is with grave difficulty that the rich enter into the kingdom of God. So if you are wealthy today, and to be quite frank, if we live in America, most of us, if not all of us, are wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world's standards. I don't think any of us really are wondering about what we're going to eat when we go home. We might be to some degree, but we know there are things there for us to eat. And if we need to go get something, we'll go to the grocery store. Get in our car or take public transportation. One way or the other, we have ways of getting about. That's unlike our dear North Korean brethren, men and women, boys and girls who are imprisoned or even not imprisoned, but treated at the edges of society who must go and search the grass to find a rat to eat. We've heard many stories about that. It's not a joke. Wealth often exerts an undue influence, and in the same way, we are often tested as to how we can care best for the poor when they are so very clearly needy and they come into the church. Well, we should do so in both respects with discernment, seeking to show the kind of character and love that Christ would show towards them. But prejudice, favoritism, bias are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, they they deny the faith. To exercise prejudice against another human being based upon their skin color, their gender, based upon their economic standing, based upon their circumstances in life, is contrary to the faith. You are denying the faith if you exercise such, such an attitude or perspective. Let's see why. This is, secondly, favoritism's consequences. There's an if-then statement found in verses 2 and 4. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, and so on and so on, and you pay special attention to that one, then, in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? If you exercise this favoritism, haven't you done this? That's what he's asking. This is what happens. Where favoritism is shown, the individual who practices this has engaged themselves as a judge. 
And one who's making their judgments upon the basis of evil and thoughts that are contrary to the word of God and not at all in accord with the glory revealed in Jesus Christ. A wicked inconsistency is present here. The Christian has come to see that Jesus is glorious, that he's good, that the world is empty and evil and vain and contrary to the goodness of God. And if we've seen that, then to fall back and play favorites based upon worldly estimates, then our loyalty to God has been divided. We are denying the faith by our, by our prejudice. It's time to get rid of those prejudices, dear friends. It's time to determine that we will no longer think that way. It's time to think, it's time to to make a judgment upon ourselves and to examine ourselves and to see whether or not we have thought that way, whether or not we look at other Christians or other people who come into the assembly of God's people in that way. And we we make distinctions based upon external appearance and or, or wealth or privilege or poverty. We ought to determine that we will never deny the faith, but we will always revere what God calls glorious, what God calls good, the glory of Christ, and we will hold them to be more glorious than the worldly distinctions of wealth and influence. I'd rather have Jesus than have my last name be the Kardashian. That should be our attitude as Christians. We'd rather have... We'd rather have Jesus Christ and to know and to have a full knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus than to be one of the most influential persons on social media here in the Western world. Should we not? If one shows favoritism based upon worldly criteria, that person has adopted the standards of the world and has cast away in that moment the glory of Christ They have set themselves up as judges, truly misunderstanding their own status as well as the status of the brother or sister in the Lord. It's as if it were their position to sit in judgment of other people. And they are placing themselves in that position to believe that we could, while standing in our own judgment, make a true and accurate assessment of others is the height of human pride, audacity. You do not know what is inside of a person. You do not know the heart of another individual. You do not know you're not privy to God's ultimate mercy toward them until you get to know them. How could you ever judge them immediately by their appearance right off the bat? Such a thing is evil, according to James. It's a foolish perspective, too. The wealthy typically oppress the church. But here's the truth. God does not show partiality, nor does he play favorites or make distinctions based upon worldly criteria. In fact, he told told the Jews, I didn't choose you because you were a mighty nation. I chose you because you were the smallest, the most insignificant people. So that my glory would be made evident in you. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. He had a certain level of prejudice and, and of, uh, of an inability to enter into Cornelius' house, who was a Roman, and to 
and to share with him the gospel and to see him enter into the kingdom of God. And he says, truly now I understand that God shows no partiality as he saw grace poured out upon these Roman believers, new believers. Romans 2.11, Paul says, for God shows no partiality. Acts 10, 34 and 35, Peter opened his mouth as I've already read, but then he adds in the second verse, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So if we understand that God does not show favoritism and we understand that we should not, we need favoritism's remedy. Thirdly, favoritism's remedy. Really, the glory of Christ is our remedy. If if making assessments and holding prejudices against other persons based upon my uh, visual criteria and what we observe on the outside, according to the world standards of what the world says people should be revered for, their wealth, their outward appearance, their influence of certain things, our remedy is to look at Jesus Christ and to see that he alone is what is good and right and true Glorious, beautiful, wonderful. And to then carefully tailor our own prejudgments of people and our own tendency to favoritism and prejudice and bias and to qualify it by what God sees and what God upholds to think God's thoughts after him. In Christ, the glory of God revealed in him touches upon our judgments between people. 2 Corinthians chapter two, or, or 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, tells us that Jesus became poor for our sake. If we're going to reject the poor, then we have to reject Christ. If we're going to reject poor people because, well, they're not influential, we're going to put them at the on the stools or on the floor, sit down, at the farthest reaches of the sanctuary, well, then you're rejecting Christ. Hebrews 2.14 tells us he took our nature upon himself, that he took our sin upon him in 1 Peter 2.24, that he took our curse upon him in Galatians 3.13, that he brought our blinded minds to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in 2 Corinthians 4.4. In a word, it was in Christ that God, the Father, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And until you came in faith to Christ, you didn't think rightly, I didn't think rightly about anything or anyone. We formed our own prejudices based upon our own experiences. But now having been saved by grace through faith, having a new nature, having been redeemed, regenerated in our inner being, now it is our obligation to think God's thoughts after him, to look differently at the world, to love different things, to have a different disposition toward people. What the world values and is prejudiced towards is completely upended by God's love for sinners. You see it in Mary's Magnificat. My soul, she says in Luke 1, exalts the Lord. My spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humblest state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. This insignificant virgin woman. He's done great things for me. And holy is his name, not based upon her appearance or wealth or influence. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. Mary doesn't have 
an influential social media gathering of 500,000 people. She's not a co-sponsor for all the latest cosmetics. She's simply a young woman upon whom God has come with mercy and grace. And she says, He has done great things for me. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Paul asks similar questions. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He writes to the first the church in the first letter to them, Consider your calling, brethren, that there weren't many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. We need to search our hearts as we conclude this morning to see whether or not there be any wicked way within us to submit to the glory of Jesus Christ, to submit to the Lord and to see that if we are making favorite, uh, favoritistic decisions or prejudicial thought towards other human beings, maybe our Christianity is not quite so authentic. If we hold prejudices of hate, the dismissing attitude against certain individuals, we will have nothing to do with them, and it goes beyond race, isn't? doesn't it? Uh, older folk can look down on younger families with noisy children. Younger families can down, look down on older folk simply because of their old ways, because of their age, because, well, they don't, they're not relevant anymore. Men can look down upon women, women upon men. Young women can look down upon young women and young men can look down upon young men. There are so many different ways in which we can play favorites and hold prejudices against one another, but we have to have a commitment, a personal commitment to warmly welcome all who are in fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ, to open wide the arms of fellowship and to, to, to make no distinctions between one another, nor to emphasize our differences, but rather to accept our differences and to emphasize our oneness in Christ Jesus. In status, in judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, he must be supreme. As to how we would accept others, we must ask how he would accept them. As to how he would appraise others, we must ask how he would appraise them. As to how we would act toward others, we must ask how would he act towards them. Our values, our priorities, our activities must ever be governed by the definition of true glory displayed in that person, his conduct, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not deny the faith by being respecters of persons, holding various prejudices and biases, and playing favorites. But rather let us revere and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in how we look at and receive one another. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for this passage this morning. We, we desire to continually be examining ourselves to see whether or not our hearts walk in genuine purity before you, whether or not our faith is 
growing, is uh, is vibrant and real. We desire to be sincere, but Lord, we know that we can be hypocritical, that we can walk in hypocrisy before you. We know that we can offend and deeply wound and hurt one another, but our desire is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Our desire is to look at Jesus Christ in his resplendent glory and then to look at one another in light of having seen and knowing him. O oh Lord, help us to walk in genuine Christianity, genuine faith, not being, not holding prejudices against one another to such an extent that we hate that we would treat another substantially different because of how they look or how different we may be. To hold things, hold circumstances or one's lot in life or one's wealth or influence against another person because they lack these things. And then conversely, to, to, to give someone an undue influence in the church simply because they have money. Lord, keep us from these sinful perspectives. Forgive us for the many different forms that we may show favoritism or hold prejudices against one another. But help us recognizing differences to truly love one another as you have loved us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me in your hymnal to our last hymn, number 431. stand together.
condemnation now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head and clothed in righteous uh, in righteousness divine receive the blessing of the Lord the love of God the Father the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all amen, and amen.